I'm Jake Miller from the Educational Duct Tape Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect those of others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, I got a, I got a favor to ask of you. And it, it goes like this. Do you, do you have somebody that you know that uh, doesn't listen to Teaching Learning Leading K-12? Hmm? You know, someone who you could say, hey, you should listen to Teaching Learning Leading K-12. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it could be a family member. It could be a good friend. It could be a colleague. You know, just uh, anybody that you know that listens to podcasts that uh, you could make them into a new subscriber for us. Well, I'd love it if you took a chance and uh, reached out to someone and said, hey. You ought to listen to Teaching Learning Leading K-12. Get them to subscribe. Thanks. You're awesome. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for listening. Have a wonderful day. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Russell Heath. He's the author of a couple novels, including Wren's Crossing, which is his latest. It's a suspense thriller that takes place in the Alaskan wilderness. Matter of fact, here's a little bit about it. On a remote Alaskan island, Rin Van Ness commits a minor felony. His former lover is arrested for the crime and a murder someone tried to pin on him. Great stuff. Let's talk a little bit more about Russell. He also sailed around the world in a 25-foot wooden boat, worked on the Alaskan pipeline, was an environmental lobbyist in the Alaskan legislature, and is now a leadership coach for business and nonprofit leaders, and so much more. Lots to learn today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching Learning Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. In his teens, Russell Heath hitchhiked to Alaska and lived in a cabin on the banks of the Tanana River. In his 20s, he lived in Italy and then traveled overland across the Sahara through the jungles and over the savannas of Africa and into southern Asia. In his 30s, he sailed alone around the world in a 25-foot wooden boat. In his 40s, he wrote novels, and in his 50s, he bicycled the spine of the Rockies from Alaska to Mexico. He's worked on the Alaska Pipeline as an environmental lobbyist in the Alaska legislature and run a storied environmental organization fighting to protect Alaska's coastal rainforests. In 2010, wanting more frenzy in his life, he moved to New York City, where he dug deep into leadership development and coaching. He now lives in a cabin on the coast of Maine, coaching business and nonprofit leaders, intent on making big things happen in the world. He's the author of the books Broken Angels and Wren's Crossing, and today we're focused on Wren's Crossing. A little bit about Wren's Crossing. On a remote Alaskan island, Wren Van Ness commits a minor felony. His former lover is arrested for the crime and a murder someone tried to pin on him. Out on bail, Kit Olinsky fights a scorched-earth battle in the state legislature to save the Alaska she loves. She can only win if she betrays her friend Dan Wakefield, a native fighting desperately for what was promised to his people a generation ago. In the back rooms of the legislature, Senator Billy Macon manipulates Alaska's grimy politics with vindictive mastery in the drive to the governor's mansion. Like a lone wolf, Wren slips out of the forest to protect Kit, never suspecting that he has more at stake than a lonely prison cell. Russell, great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining me today, and say hi to everyone. Hey, hi, everyone, and thank you, Steve, for inviting me. Well, I'm glad you're here, and I'm enjoying reading your book, and, uh, and what an incredible background you have. I mean, you've traveled a little bit of everywhere, which is amazing, and, uh, um, and very, very cool. And what I'd like to do is mention something that you talked about in your bio, which, which is uh, um, in your teens, you hitchhiked to Alaska and lived in a cabin along the, the, the Tanana River. Where did you start your journey, and could you tell us about your time spent there? So I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia, and from the earliest, earliest age that I can remember, I loathe them. And I learned about Alaska in my early teens, like 13 or 14, and, ever, and once I learned, I wanted to go. So I, um, I left high school at 11th grade. I, I, I had a couple of, of um, things that got in my way, but I finally set off when I was 19. I hitchhiked then from Philadelphia to, uh, to Fairbanks. That's just amazing. I mean, it... Did you have any, I mean, along the way, did you meet any, that one special character that helped you get there that you remember, or they just kind of? Well, there, there are a lot of characters. You know, it's, it's interesting to me that back in the 70s, when it was much more dangerous, I was able to hitchhike. And now today, when it's a lot safer, no one, no one picks up hitchhikers anymore. I, I don't know what kids do without 
you know, wanting to wander around the planet and can't hitchhike. But, um, oh, you know, I met this guy once in, in I was in the Rockies in, 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 uh, in Alberta, you know, the Canadian Rockies. And we were just sitting and talking. We'd only known each other for all of 60 seconds. And, and I said, you know, I, liked, I prefer canoeing to, to uh, hiking. And he said he did too. And I said, well, let's go on a canoe trip. And, you know, three weeks later, we were up in Whitehorse in the Yukon Territories, and we found an old beat-up aluminum canoe and a couple of paddles, and, and we got this, this drunk. I mean, he, at least he was sober to drive us out to, the, to a, a little lake called Quiet Lake, and we canoed down the Big Salmon River and then into the Yukon. It was about a 500-mile trip, took out at, uh, at Dawson Creek, you know, which was part of the, the Alaska Gold Rush way back in 1898. That, that's amazing. <laughs> that's, you know, just... Uh... You know, when you set out on this journey, did you just, I mean, did you start out with everything you needed or, I mean, did you kind of figure, here's what I need to start off with and I'm going to um, figure out the rest? Or, I mean, did you have a master plan to make it all work out or what? It was a teenager. I didn't have a clue. <laughs> what I that's why I was asking. That's, that's what I was wondering. <laughs> No, I, you know, I had a backpack and, a, and some boots and a, and a camp stove and, you know, a couple hundred bucks and just stuck out my thumb. You know, I knew where I wanted to go. Wow, that's that is that's awesome. And you got there, and you you, you were able to um, make this journey and uh, and ha spend this time. This that it alone is just an amazing an amazing story, and it, it uh, uh, so so cool. I you know it, while you're in Alaska, you end up serving as a lobbyist in the Alaska legislature to help protect you know this wonderful area of our world. Could you talk a little about that experience? So that was a few years later, right? I wasn't a teenager when I was, right. I was a lobbyist. <laughs> Sorry about that audience. I should have, I should have pointed that out. <laughs> so, so yeah, so, so I, I ran the Alaska Environmental Lobby and I represented the environmental community in the state legislature. And, you know, it's a scary, it was a really scary thing for me because I, I'm a radical introvert. You know, up until my my 20s or 30s, I, I didn't have enough courage to, to, you know, start a conversation with a Coke machine and to, to go out there and, and pound tables and give testimony and knock on legislators doors was, you know, it was really pushing my my capabilities at the time. Uh, but it was an extraordinary experience. I mean, politics, you know, I, I, I think politicians get a bad rap, you know, because, you know, as social animals, politics is the way which we mediate differences of opinion, different values and, and different interests. And a good politician is really providing a service. And that said, most of the politicians didn't like environmentalists very much. And so it was, a, it was definitely an uphill battle. And in fact, you know, for your listeners who don't know, Alaska is a fairly conservative state. And by and large, we could never win. All the best we could do is not lose so much. Anyway, I could go on and on. Is there anything else you'd like to know on? on well, what, you know, one of the things that uh, I think that uh, you, you spent some time trying to uh, work on protecting the, the forest, um, which comes out. Can you just talk a little bit about what, uh, what area we're talking of Alaska, where that is? And, you know, um, I mean, lots of us have, you know, I've, I've had the good fortune of being able to uh, fish for king salmon on a river and uh, uh, where we had to use a float plane to get to the river and in the middle of nowhere. And I, and I got to tell you, you mentioned the seventies before as someone who was a little kid in the early seventies. And I can remember, um, the, on the Saturday cartoons in between them, they used to have, uh, these different specials that would come on about, uh, the demise of the bald Eagle because of, uh, the different poisons that uh, were being used and such at the time. And, uh, um, and, you know, there's this big focus on saving the bald Eagle and it's, it's pretty wild when I was able to be out there a few years ago to see the number of bald eagles that I was amazed everywhere. And uh, so just as a side note, it's, it's, it, personally, it was just amazing to me to be able to be in a place where there's very few people. There was no phone, no lights, no motor car um, to steal from my old favorite 60s TV show. And, you know, it's, uh, it, you know, you literally had, uh, we had generators and such, and it was amazing to be out in the wilderness that, uh, you know, just to, to see what's there. And you're actually talking about a different area where I am talking about, I guess, is like, like South Central Alaska. You're Southwest. Yeah. 
out in the out in the uh, the Bristol Bay watershed. Gotcha. And you're way up. You're talking a little further up where there's lots of trees and stuff, right? <laughs> right. Less less tundra. Yeah. Just as an aside, you know the. The joke in Alaska is the sound of the Alaska wilderness is the mutter of a generator. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, so initially I was in Fairbanks, which is in the interior of the state. But when I was running the Southeast Alaska Conservation Council, which was an organization after the Alaska Environmental Lobby, that was down in the southeast portion of the state. So the southeast is a rainforest. There, there are coastal mountains there and it blocks the warm air coming over in the Japan current. And of course that warm air has lots of moisture. So it rains a lot in Southeast Alaska, a tremendous amount in Southeast Alaska. And consequently the, the trees are big, the bears are big. It's a, just, it's a very fertile place with lots and lots of wildlife. Just, it's just truly, truly extraordinary. What and because it- Go, go ahead, I'm sorry, go, go ahead. Well, because the trees are big, Back in the 50s, the United States government had this great idea to start jobs by essentially subsidizing major timber companies to go up there and cut them. And they wanted to turn all of Southeast Alaska into a tree farm, in essence. And the plan was to have five gigantic mills churning through these great thousand-year-old trees. And my organization, the Southeast Alaska Conservation Council, was set up in the 70s to fight that plan and stop the... Uh, stop the logging and we've largely been successful there are no big mills left in southeast alaska only two of the five got built uh, they were subsidized with you know american taxpayer dollars and and they took trees that individually could be worth tens of thousands of dollars if if put to the proper use they turned it into pulpwood and we sold them the united states government sold them for the price of a hamburger of a cheeseburger um, and they all got put into mills and turned into rayon and, and, and pulp. Now the, the, the trees are being used. They're still, they're still logging on the Tongass, but the trees are being used at a higher value than they were before. I mean, Gibson sources its spruce from those, um, you know, for their guitar tops from those trees and, and you know, Steinway gets their sounding boards from those trees. And, and when you get a tree like that, again, that tree could be worth $20,000. You only have to cut one of them. You don't have to cut tens of thousands of them. Wow. Anyway, it was an epic, epic battle to, to protect the Tongass. That's, that's amazing. The, uh, I'm sure you met uh, an experience. And, you know, in a second, we're going to shift to Wren's Crossing, your book. And you, exp you, know, you, you've, <laughs> you have some uh, political world adventures that happen in there and uh, um, I would think that some of that was some of that reality that you experienced that uh, whether this is not reality in your book but at the same time some of it is <laughs> oh all of it you, you know you know any any of your literature teachers know out there that fiction may be fiction but it speaks to a higher truth than nonfiction, and that's what I was aiming for in Rinse Crossing and and one of the things you know, that I brought to it is these epic battles that have riven Alaska since statehood, well, even prior to statehood. The, the resources there are rich, are just tremendously rich. And, and there have always been people that want to exploit them. And, and I don't want to, to say that that's necessarily bad because I, I use resources every day. You know, I eat my broccoli and I, I write on paper. But it's a question of how it's done and whether it can be done in a way that, that is a win-win for both the resource and for people, you know, for the economy, for people who need jobs and need to pay their mortgages and put their kids through school. But to, to back up just a minute ago in terms of what you said about, you know, the politics and the, the reality of it, yes, you know, I spent time in the Alaska State Legislature, I saw a lot of political manipulations and dirty tricks and how bills are passed and how they're not passed. And, and all of those things ended up in the novel. So the novel is a, is a real, it's a, it's a, um, it, it's, it's real life in the sense of what happens in that novel. Most of it happened in Alaska history. And two, it takes key themes that are 
<clears throat> that go through all of Alaska history, go through Alaska history through statehood and turns it into, you know, a ripping story. Gotcha. Which is uh, pretty wild. I mean, in, in Rin's Crossing, two friends, you know, who had fought to protect Alaska and Alaska natives committed crimes neither could have imagined of themselves. What was it that drove them to break the law? I mean, let's kind of get into the book here a little bit more. What is it about wanting a better world that would drive people to commit a crime? Yeah, that's a good question. And all you have to do is look around, right? I mean, there are 19 folks that drove airplanes into, into the world trade center thinking they were going to make a better world. It's a, it's an interesting question that, that I've struggled with most of my life is, is, you know, each of us builds a world inside our heads. We mistake that world for reality and we get really heated about defending that world. And, you know, that, that heat plays out in politics when, when the, when the culture is working, you know, when the society is working well, then it plays out in war when it doesn't, when, you know, when there's a breakdown, but when you really step back, Essentially, we built this world that's really kind of delusional because it's it's we've made it up. If you're if you're a student of history, you can go back and look at what people fought over. You know, 100, 200 years ago, and you kind of laugh at them because they're no longer, you know, those issues are no longer important to us. And let me give you an example. I, you know, I've I've studied a lot of of Christian history, and and the thing that that really tore apart the early church in the first two or three centuries. Right, still during the Roman Empire, was a question of whether Jesus was of divine stuff or human stuff. What was he made of? Was he a god or not? I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people were killed over that question. And it, it even split apart the Roman Empire, you know, in the fourth century. And who, who argues about that today? Really, nobody. And so the point I'm making is that we get these values, we get these ideas in our heads, and we defend them with just reflexive heat. And again, it plays out in the legislature, it plays out in politics if the society's working well. And what I wanted to do in the book is show how people, so you said two friends, it's actually three friends, three friends who initially you know, fought together side by side for better things, but then as issues in the state started growing, they had to choose sides. And in choosing sides, they betrayed each other. And that's the conflict of the book. They're good people, but they believe so strongly in what they, what they believe in and their values that they both betray each other and they cross the line, they break a law. I can tell you, you get into it right away. <laughs> Especially the, when I, in the beginning of, of the book, you, you get introduced to a couple of your characters and some things happen and you start that, that question of, uh, loyalty to whatever a person or a belief has to play mm -hmm. out, which is interesting. I, uh, you know, that's, and that's a powerful thing. It, you know, one of the things that I uh, wanted to make sure we talked about is, you know, Rin's crossing is unique in that uh, who the good guys are and who the bad guys are depends on the reader's values and political orientation. Um, you know, why'd you write it that way? Yeah. Good question. So, so again, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a truism in, in literature or in fiction that the quality of your story is dependent on the quality of your bad guy, right? So like in Milton's Paradise Lost, God is really boring, but Lucifer is really exciting because he's the bad guy. Or you think of, you know, really good uh, bad guys. You think of Voldemort in the Harry Potter series. Or my favorite bad guy is Hannibal Lecter in The Silence of the Lands. I mean... Hannibal is highly educated, super intelligent, unstoppable, and he's a serial murderer and a cannibal for Christ's sakes, right? So that's what drives a story is, the, is your bad guy. How good your bad guy is, you know, how well-crafted, how evil he is. And okay, well, most of us in our lives don't really have an antagonist like Voldemort or Hannibal Lecter in our lives. Most of our antagonists are our neighbors. You know, if, if you're a Trump supporter, then it's the Bernie supporter next door or vice versa. If you're a logger, it's the greenie next door or vice versa. We make our neighbors our bad guys. And what I wanted to do on the novel, one is I want to have a lot of conflict because the novel's pretty boring if you don't have some kind of conflict, but I didn't want to have the Voldemort. 
I wanted to show that who our bad guys are depends on our point of view, right? And what rips Alaska apart, of course, is there are different points of view about how Alaska, Alaska should be or what kind of Alaska we want. So, so really, you know, you asked me why I want to do it. I don't know why I wanted to do it, but that's why. <laughs> that's what I, I, I wanted to do it because, because that's, you know, that kind of conflict is the kind of conflict that we create for ourselves. It's the kind of conflict that most of us have. That's it's right right on the money. We you know we may have somebody or something that we think of as the Voldemort, which by the way I love that analogy. Uh, that's, it, it, but in reality we don't. It's it's a concept or whatever story we've told ourselves. And you're so that's that's so good because you know it's uh, one of the things you discover right off the bat in your story is that uh, people who know each other have to decide whether they're it's worth fighting. Which, which, what's the battle they're going to fight here or tell the truth about or um, where they're going to, you know, what, they're, what flag they're going to follow, that type of thing. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a pretty cool trick, by the way, because it makes you want to know what's, you know, are you going to do the right thing or not as, you know, as you're looking at one of those characters or in your own interpretation of that. Right. So, and, you know, you asked me the question of, of um, you know, that you made the point that the bad guy depends on the reader's point of view, right? So there are four, there are four essential characters. There's the three friends, and then there's the one guy who's not a friend. And the points of view are, you know, you have environmentalists, you have nihilists, the guy who's given up, you have uh, Alaska Native, okay? And then you have a developer, a person who, who sincerely believes that, that the resources are to be developed and to and you know to to put to provide jobs for good hardworking people, right? So you got those four points of view, right? and they're going to conflict. There's no way around it. They're going to conflict, and those are the points of view really that 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 rip Alaska apart today. It's just part of our political culture. There's those those uh, you know those fights, those arguments about what Alaska is going to be. I, I I can see it. I've experienced some of it firsthand from listening to people talk as I was there in in, in the wilderness and uh, listening to some of the the battles over different aspects of the land and the resources. And it's it's interesting. I mean, like just to give a, a taste of one of the things I ran into was that um, develop you know a, a industry that that wants to have access to land and uh, and minerals and so forth. Uh, one of the things that many of the natives were supportive of it was that they provided jobs to everyone. They were, you know, they were buying the fuel to fuel all their trucks and they were putting fuel in their airplanes and they were, you know, and uh, they were able to take them here and there and using them as guides. I mean, there's any number of jobs that people were getting, which made it difficult for uh, um, the people who were trying to defend the area of the land because, you know, they, they're not offering them jobs. <laughs> um, and, well, or they'll lose their jobs. Right. Right. So you're referring to the Pebble Mine in Western, Western Alaska, and, and that's a classic example. But just coming back to Southeast Alaska, right? So that there are hundreds of people whose jobs depended on the timber industry, right? And those right. same people who were out cutting the forest at the same time loved being in the wilderness. They loved to hunt. They loved to fish. They loved the fact that, that, that they didn't have traffic jams or they didn't, their communities did, did not even have stoplights. And on the other hand, you had the, the environmentalists, the people that have a different kind or the people that have different kinds of jobs that aren't immediately resource dependent. But they use all the products that are produced by those resources. So the, the irony is that you have, you have, say, loggers and greenie, greenies or environmentalists, right, who conflict over how the forest should be used. But both sides use what the other is either producing or defending. Right. So right. the logger loves the wilderness and the environmentalist is using the resources, you know, the paper products or the rayon or, 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 or whatever. And it causes all kinds of moral questions, really, about how, how we, we, we manage our lives. And it's, it's easy to point the finger at the other person and call them hypocrites, but, but we're all hypocrites.
it, it really fits well when you, it comes to what you're, you know, you're talking about the resources there and the nature and so forth. And, it, you know, one of the things that uh, um, I think it's a perfect fit for this question right here is we're kind of transitioning this direction. You know, some readers and critics have said that your novel's about corrupt politics, but you don't see it that way. And I think that just came out of a little bit of what you were saying there. Can you talk about that just a little bit? Yeah, and I, I mentioned it a little earlier that, that we tend to look at politicians and lobbyists and see, you know, corrupt, selfish people. But as I said, I think pol politicians are, they get a bad rap and they're really providing a, an invaluable service. Because again, politics is about how we mediate different values and different, different interests. And Again, what I try to do in Rins Crossing is so so for people out there who are worried that the that the book, which is political, is also a screed or is is an ideological rant. It's not. I give all four of those people, all four of the main characters, okay, their time in the sun. They get to explain their issues, not in lectures, you know. But and I also get the so the and and then the 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 countervailing point of view the the opposite point of view or the the, the uh, is is given as well so i tried to stay away from the ideological ideological rant but nevertheless they do have points of view and those points of view have to be mediated in in within a political structure the the um the, the i guess the fictional device that i use to have this all play out is a grand compromise Right, so politics is about making the sausage. And one of the things, one of the compromises, so, the, so Billy Macon, who is the developer, he's also a powerful state senator and he wants to become governor of Alaska, wants to put together a, a package of bills. Part of the package is what the left wants and part of the package is what the right wants and neither can get what they want unless everything passes at once. The conflict becomes is that for some people, the compromise comes at too high a price, All right? So there's some people on the left that are not gonna vote for this package because what the right wants is too painful for them. Okay, so just to give you an example, the, what the left is fighting for, particularly the native community is what's called a subsistence amendment. And Subsistence is the term that we use in Alaska to describe the, you know, the process by which people live off the land. Okay. And you, you, you ran into that when you're in Western Alaska on your fishing trip, you had the commercial fishermen, the recreational fishermen and the subsistence fishermen. So the subsistence fishermen are largely native who, who catch the fish because <laughs> that's the way they get their groceries in essence. And when the Alaska land claims were settled in 1971, it was promised that the, to the Alaska natives that they would have a preference, they would have a subsistence preference to the hunting and fishing resources in Alaska. And that promise has never been kept. So even today, on state lands at least, the Alaska natives do not have a subsistence preference. And by subsistence preference, I mean that they get first crack at the hunting and fishing resources before commercial, before recreational fishermen or hunters, okay? So that's what it means. And in order to do that, you need to change the constitution. You need to amend the constitution because, you know, as the people on the right would say is why would you guys we're all americans why should the natives have special rights why do they get a a right that we don't get and that's the heart of that conflict and on the right whoops in, in the book so on the right the bills are you know it's an anti-union bill an anti-abortion bill and two anti-environmental bills one dealing with oil and one dealing with timber and I don't want to get too complex here, but you can see that there's some people that would say, I don't care about the subsistence amendment if a anti-abortion bill passes, or I'm not going to, I don't want the, I, I won't vote for the subsistence amendment if a logging, a pro-logging bill passes, right? Anyway, that's the conflict that gotcha. kicks, every, kicks everything off.
And what's cool is that you put that right in everybody's, it's right there in the beginning of the book. It explains this. And listening to you talk, it, it always, I mean, it becomes obvious why it's there in the beginning, but it, even more so right now while I'm talking to you. It's like, yeah, now I understand why you put that right there as we begin the book. So I love that. Um, but yeah, it does show, I mean, that explains a lot. And but by the way, the subsistence in your book, you also identify what some things aren't real and what is real, but the subsistence that is real, right? All those are real. Yeah. Well, those four bills have, have seen, have, have been introduced in the legislature at one time or another. And the subsistence amendment, I, I mean, it, it's less of an issue now, essentially because I think the natives have lost. Right. When, when I started writing the book, it was still a really big, hot, burning issue is to get that subsistence amendment passed. Um, but it just, even though the, the, you know, the, 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 the um, Alaskans in general largely support some kind of subsistence or they've changed it a little bit to rural subsistence, um, it's never made it through the legislature. Gotcha. Okay. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things that uh, um, I wanted to ask you here is let's talk about your writing just a little bit. And you've touched on some of this, which is pretty cool. Um, I want to talk about how you write. I mean, you've written two novels now and one is currently in the making. So you've got a third one coming and uh, let's talk about writing. Do you outline or do you just start and see where you go? No, <laughs> no, I, I definitely don't start and see where I go. That, that would be a disaster. Uh, <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting you ask that question because when I first committed to writing a book, right, and, and you got to understand, I always wanted to be a writer like I wanted to be a rock star or the president of the United States. It was a dream you have when you're fantasizing, when you're doing something really boring that you never think is really going to happen, right? right. And, and every time I would sit down in front of a computer, well, well, I started in front of a piece of paper, I couldn't put anything on it. I said, you know, I, I wouldn't even know how to get started. So, so I, I, I decided I was going to write a novel, right? It's kind of like deciding I'm going to be famous. And then you got to think, well, what do I want to be famous for? So I'm thinking, I can write a novel, but how do you get started? I, I didn't have a clue. And I struggled with this. And then, and then I remembered I'd read a book by Jane Smiley called A Thousand Acres. And... I can't remember when she read it, wrote it. It must have been in the 80s, early 90s. Anyway, I'm reading through it, and I realize it's a scene-by-scene ripoff of King Lear, right? And this woman, she doesn't get hauled away for plagiarism and locked up. She gets the Pulitzer Prize for it. Nice. And so I think, ah, oh, that's what I will do, is I will find a play that's out of copyright, and the guy's dead. You know, the playwright's dead, so he's not going to come after me for stealing his stuff. <laughs> and base my novel on that. And I'm not really a mystery reader, but for a variety of reasons, the first book had to be a mystery. And I'm thinking, okay, what's the first play or what's the first literary um, you know, product in, in the Western canon that has to deal with a mystery? And I thought, oh, it's Oedipus Rex by Sophocles. You know, that was written 2,500 years ago. I don't think he's going to come after me for stealing his best stuff. So, you know, that's the first book was, was based on, on Oedipus. And, and that, that got me started. So for all of you out there wondering how to, how to write your novel, that's, you know, I mean, Shakespeare did that. Almost all of Shakespeare's plays are based on other sources that he took and modified and, and, uh, and it's funny because none of those sources would be famous today if, if Shakespeare hadn't done that, you know. So, um, whatever, which I'm not saying that Sophocles is famous today because I wrote Broken Angels, but whatever. <laughs> I, that's cool. That's, that's an interesting thought, what, what you're talking about there, just uh, um, <laughs> to go take that story from the pastor that they're not going to come back and sue you. They might haunt you. Yeah, I don't know about that, but... <laughs> I'd be honored to be haunted by Sophocles. I would truly be honored. That would be cool. That might be a character right there. I don't know. <laughs> so, to, so to come back to your question then, so, you know, in Broken Angels, then I thought about the book for a year, right? And, and started putting the scenes together in my head and how I wanted to go. And of course, you understand that, that writing is a, is, a, is a complex and difficult craft. And I was a beginner. 
But the thing that scared me the most, of course, is like, like the person who's been on a, a million, their millionth diet, right? That the, the millionth and one diet is going to fail too. And so I was convinced that once I started actually writing this, it would last for a week. And then I go back to, to, you know, I'd say, you know, watching Netflix, but Netflix wasn't around back then. <laughs> Any case, the, that was my worry. So what I did is I really limited myself. I said, I'd only work for two hours a day on the novel. I do these little baby steps. And I would, I, then I outlined the entire novel. I had all the scenes. Okay. And little three or four sentences describing each scene. And then what I noticed was that I was really enjoying this. So I bumped it up to four hours a day and then six or seven hours a day. And it was then that, that the writing really took off and I really enjoyed the, enjoyed the whole process. Excellent. I love that. That's, that's, that's cool. That, uh, as you realized that, uh, you kind of like it, that you expanded the time frame and which led to it being finished. So very cool. Uh, you, you know, your, your book features a strong female lead. How ch challenging was it to create her story? And, and if you talk about it here, cause you have these other characters, which you've talked about the four main characters, you know, something that makes a good story, something that makes a story thrilling. If you're going to have a thrilling book is, uh, you know, that uh, the characters interact and are believable. I mean, how do you create your characters? How do you, how do you, where do you begin? Well, for Rinse Crossing, so the, 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 um, the lead there is, is Kit, Kit Olinsky, and she's, she's the um, executive director of the Alaska Environmental Lobby, so that she's in the position that I was in when I was a lobbyist. And there, there are a couple things about characters, right? And, and I won't say that I do a good job with these, but most characters are not real. They're not, they, you don't want them to be real. They're an artistic creation. And you need to make that distinction. So, so I'll just tell you a story. When I was back in school years and years, well, decades ago, I took an art history class. And, and art history, art is totally foreign to me. Right? And I was spending, and they go all the way, they start, they, they, the professor started it at uh, Cimabue back in, back in the Italian Renaissance. And they, and, and came up, you know, to, Picasso and, and, and whatnot. And I'm sitting there, you know, saying, why don't they just paint what they see? <laughs> you know, what's, what's Picasso doing all this, you know, three nose thing? Why don't they just paint what they see? I couldn't get it. I was like a Philistine. <laughs> and, and you realize then, I, I remember when it hit me, is they're not painting to represent reality. They're painting to have an artistic interpretation of reality. And when I understood that, then art all, all opened up and that became my favorite class in, 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 in college was that art history class. And it's the same with a character. A character is an artistic representation of a person. It isn't the person. And I know all your literature teachers out there are thinking of Virginia Woolf and the modernists in the early part of the 20th century. And yeah, but really, how many times did people read the To the Lighthouse and get really, really excited? <laughs> you know, it's... You want an artistic creation that is different from reality. And so to put these people together, you need to give them personalities that conflict, that personalities that are complex, and personalities that are also in some way engaging. So, so one of, the, one of the, the concerns I have, or one of the, the criticisms that I'm getting from people who are reading Rin's Crossing is they don't like Rin very much. And I'm very defensive of Rin because Rin represents a, a very Alaskan type. Okay. And the Alaskan type is a guy, a male, who can't deal with people. It's just too difficult. And so they, they go to Alaska so they can live in the bush, right, and get away from people. And they can be where their trees and their grizzly bears and things like that. So Kid, on the other hand, right, the 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 female, the, the, the lobbyist, her arc in the book is from being powerless to being powerful. Okay. So this is, this is the arc that, that modern women are, are following now is, you know, they're socialized to be one way, yet if they want to move into the, into the outer world away from the, the domestic world, they've got to be powerful in a different way. And what you see in Kit is her 
her consolidation, her development, her building her power, both in terms of her personal relationships, but also in the way that she works politically. And part of that power, of course, comes from, she realizes the only way she's going to win is she's going to step over the line. At the beginning of the book, she thinks that stepping over the line is bad, but by the end of the book, she's changed her mind. Nice. And that's cool. You have that change that, like, like you said, the arc, the, the change in her, uh, where she starts and where she goes to, which is neat. By the way, I do have to say this. I, I'm, I don't like Rin very much right now either. So that was funny when you said that statement. And I, so I'm fitting in with that group. <laughs> um, well, may I, I, I don't want to defend him, but may I, <laughs> may I explain him or where I was trying to go? Please. I, and I don't mean I don't like him as a, I like, it's, it's a character thing. It's the whole thing of, uh, you know, it was funny when you said that, because I went, I've, I've already started having a distaste for him. So please go right ahead. <laughs> well, I'd like to know, why don't you tell me first what your distaste is? He doesn't, he, all right. So it's based on something in the beginning of the book that happens uh -huh. where it seems to me that he should right away be wanting to try and help Kit. <laughs> And uh, that's not, uh -huh. that's not, that's not what happens. <laughs> well, maybe Which he's I think trying cool, to help but... her in a, diff a different way, right? So just, just for your, because this, this happens in the first chapter. So Kit, so Rin sabotages some machinery at a, at a native logging camp and Kit gets charged with this crime. And as an aside, this is, this is what started the novel. So when I was working at, at SEAC, at Southeast Alaska Conservation Council, I had this fantasy of like going into a logging camp and taking out their machinery, right? No one would catch me. None of, none of those camps have any security because they're in the middle of bloody nowhere. And I knew it wouldn't do any good because, you know, the industrial onslaught is relentless. They just get more machinery and come back, but it would be deliciously cathartic. And... And then I started thinking, well, if I did that and somebody else got charged with my crime, what would I do? And that was the start of the novel, was that question. What would you do if you got charged, if someone else got charged with your crime? So that's the position that Rin's in right at the very beginning of the novel. He commits a crime. His former lover, Kit, is charged with it. And he's got to figure out how to get her off the hook without him going to prison. So he's helping her. He's just not doing it in an above board way. But here's what I'd like to say about, about Wren. So one of the things that drives many men is the fear that they're weak. They have this fear, it may be unspoken, but it's absolutely there that they're weak. And the worst thing you can do to a man is humiliate them, is to prove to them publicly that they're weak, right? And you can certainly see this in Donald Trump in a way. I mean, he won't even wear a mask because it looks like he's weak. Okay. But men have evolved or they develop all kinds of strategies to hide their weakness. When you see somebody being macho, when you see somebody being a bully, when you see somebody being aggressive, it's often because they're hiding their weakness. The difficulty, so, so women have their own issues, but that's usually not weakness. The difficulty men have is that their path forward, their path to growth, their path to change is through accepting their vulnerability, really to open up their heart, right? But vulnerability looks like weakness. So for, for them to move beyond weakness, it looks like they have to become weak. And that's one, it's scary just on a psychological basis, but two, it doesn't make any sense. Because for them and for the masculine, you know, the traditional masculine virtues, which is strength, you know, particularly martial strength. I'm, I'm studying right now the Iliad again. And the whole Iliad, you know, the, the fight against Troy is, is, you know, how many people you kill, how strong you are, right? That is what men have to fight, that conception of themselves in order to move into vulnerability. And it's, it's, it's very, very difficult. 
So what Wren's doing, he's being standard American male who can't deal with the real world. So he moves to the wilderness, right? There are hundreds of Wren's in Alaska, okay? And his arc, of course, is accepting his vulnerability and opening up his heart. And it's tough because it looks like more weakness. Gotcha. That's that's cool. That's neat seeing how you created this character because, like, I I can vouch. I've run into plenty of them who, um, who are out there who, especially many of them, were guides. <laughs> um, because you ask them why you're out here, you know, because they're rather young and they've got these. Some of them have incredible degrees and stuff like this. That uh, I mean, geology degrees, not just a bachelor's but a master's. I mean, just any number of degrees, and they took this journey out there and they're they're learning how to to fish alaska and uh, teach others and do the out all this outdoor stuff and some of them were from i asked this one young man he was in uh, he's from montana now that's a wild state i think of montana as a wild state and he's like he goes but i thought about where's wilder alaska <laughs> yeah that's what he said to me and i said nice and he, he's like 19 years old i thought that was cool he's 20 it, it, i think he had a uh, he's probably a little older than that. He was somewhere, he just finished his bachelor's and left Montana to go to Alaska. So to, to be fishy in Alaska, that's what he called it. And well, his next stop, Siberia. Let's see if he goes. It's, <laughs> it's wilder there. But yeah, we, in Alaska, we call it the end of the road syndrome. So you get all these guys, almost exclusively men, but, but not mostly men, but not exclusively men. Let me put it that way. And they go as far as the pavement goes and then they step off and they head off into the wilderness. Right. And, well, there are lots of funny stories there, but the, the, uh, Rin, Rin is that, Rin is that person. That's cool. That's, it's, uh, I mean, it, it just shows your, the deep thinking about your characters, which I think is really cool. So, um, awesome. It, it, you know, one of the things I want to do is share, I mean, you've received some pretty cool reviews. Kirkus Reviews calls it a riveting page turner. Publishers Weekly says it's suspenseful and it's a finalist in two international competitions. Are you surprised at the positive critical response Rin's Crossing is receiving? Well, I'm certainly gratified. <laughs> I'm gratified. You know, when I, when I set out to write both Broken Angels and, and Rin's Crossing, what I, what I wanted to do is marry two different issues. You know, on one hand, you have lots of genre stuff that's produced in this country, and it's just abysmally written. It's just really poorly written. And it's, uh, you know, the, usually the characters are, aren't, there's not a lot of attention spent on the characters and certainly not the prose. And on the other hand, a lot of literary fiction doesn't have a story. I remember reading a review of Ian McEwan, right, Booker Prize winner, and he was accused of having too much story in his books. <laughs> That's why nice. I like Ian. And there's another thing I, I heard a, a radio show with being, where uh, Meg Woolitzer was being, Interviewed. So another, you know, major American novelist, and she was complaining that men don't read her, her novels. So I said, okay, well, I'm a man, I'll go read her novel. I spent the whole novel wondering when something was going to happen, right? <laughs> nice. When the woman was going to have an affair, or when she was going to get raped, or when, she, when a murder was going to happen. I was, I was thinking by the end of it, Meg, if you want men to read your novels, something has to go boom, <laughs> right? Nice. And 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 I, I want to say that the novel was truly extraordinary. I learned a lot about writing from reading reading her books. But but I understand the, where I'm going here is that I wanted to do maybe what Ian McEwan was doing is have a very very well written book, a book where there's a lot of attention to the prose, there's attention to the characterization, there's attention to the to the situation, as well as a riveting story, a story that just drove you through it. So I spent a lot of time both on the craft and the story. And I think, you know, the, the, the reviews that it's gotten, I mean, Kirkus gave it a starred review. It only gives 2% of its novels, uh, you know, starred review of its independently published novels, uh, starred review. So, so I think it's paying off in that respect. Excellent. Sounds like it is. I know my experience with it so far, it definitely is. So uh, good stuff. Yeah. It, uh, as we're getting close to closing, um, you've, you've referred to them a couple of times. You have Broken Angels um, and you have a, a, a sequel to the initial Broken Angels uh, novel you're working on. Um, and you may have some other projects. Do you want to talk about any of them before we uh, start closing out? Certainly. So, so actually my next, 
So I do have a sequel to Broken Angels in my head. I probably won't put it down until I, I, there's a, I have a woman who's trying to turn it into a TV show. You know, she wants to make it the next Broken Bad. So when that happens, I'll write, I'll write the sequel to Broken Angels. But I want to write a, a nonfiction book about sailing around the world. So I spent four years doing that. And there are a lot of, you know, sailing books out there. But I'd really like it to be a contemplative, you know, uh, what's it like to be alive in the universe kind of uh, uh, essay those those four years. So that's my next project. That would be an amazing project because you've had all those experiences. That good good luck with that. I look forward to hearing it when it uh, when you get it there. So uh, you got to. I'd be honored to be back on the podcast. If, love to have out. you back on. You got to let me know when you got when you're ready. That would be good stuff. They, uh, you know, I, I, some of the places and everything that you've been and all that is to, just amazing. So uh, look forward to uh, hearing what you got to talk about. Well, if I could interrupt. So that was one of my projects. The other project is I, um, I'm building a boat. It's a, it's a rowing boat. It's a 17 foot wherry. And I'm going to row it around Newfoundland. So that's my next project to get that around Newfoundland. Excellent. Now talk about another possible topic for a great book right there. That's just, so what do you, I mean, I, I've never been there, read stories, but uh, I understand the weather's not exactly the nicest at certain times of the year. Is that uh, going to come into play when you are rowing around or? Absolutely. No, it'll, it'll be a challenge. There, there's some, some uh, three different currents that come in around Newfoundland that cause all kinds of rough weather. But, you know, it's actually a beautiful island. I, I have been up there. And, you know, I could row around Hawaii or something, but fundamentally that'd be, forgive me, pretty boring. <laughs> I was just thinking about what you're talking about. Where's the story in that, right? No, let's, 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 let's go where there's the, the different currents and the weather is not on your side. I like that. So, yeah. um, oh, that's awesome in, it, uh, in itself. Looking forward to hearing more about uh, what happens with that. So with you building the boat, I mean, you're literally like, you're making your own planks and such. And I mean, how... No, I'm not making my, my own plank. So, so the, the, uh, I built the, uh, the boat, the boat shop. I got that up now. So next is to build the boat. And, and I wish I could, I could show you here, but the, it's a, um, it'll be made out of, out of a marine plywood, which I will cut into planks. So it'll be a planked looking boat and the, the, um, it'll be epoxied, not on a, on a frame. So the right. traditional, traditional design would be on a frame, but that's a much heavier boat when you have a frame. Uh, which is traditional. The, the wherry was invented in the 16th century. It was, it was designed to, to ferry people across the Thames and it's got a flat bottom so you can bring it up onto the beach. Nice. Nice. This is awesome. This is, a, I could spend time talking with you just about the boat. That's uh, the building of the yeah. Excellent. I'll send, well, I'll send you a picture. Please do. Please do. Yeah. Um, Russell, before we go, you know, one of the things I also want to give you a chance to share about is you have a, a leadership coaching practice, right? You wanted to, you wanted to talk about that? So, so when I was running Southeast Alaska Conservation Council, so this is a, this is a pretty dynamic organization and we're a, a political force, not a, you know, we're the da David in the, among Goliaths in, in Southeast Alaska, but nevertheless, we still have the slingshot. And what I discovered, what I noticed about myself was that I could take that organization only as far as I myself was, was, was personally developed. It was only, it was my leadership that was limiting how far we could go. And when I um, started training, I took leadership seminars and leadership uh, courses. Those leadership courses were almost entirely in skills. They were skill-based. Like how, how do you do a, um, a staff management plan? How do you do a PowerPoint? How do you, how do you, <clears throat> uh, you know, how do you build a team? But the, what I learned, what I discovered is if you didn't have an underlying behavior, right, with which to deploy that skill, it wasn't any good. And just give you an example, you can know everything, you, all the techniques of public speaking, but if you're nervous and mousy up on the stage, you're not going to be a good public speaker. You've got to address your mousiness or your, 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 your shyness or whatever on the stage before you can use the skills, the rhetorical skills that you can learn out of a book. So it's that personal development that is obvious to me was key to being an effective leader. 
And that kind of leadership development didn't happen again in most of the classes that I had available to me in Alaska. So one of the reasons I left Alaska was to go to New York City where that, those resources existed. And I discovered you know, leadership coaching programs Okay, which developed me as a leader, so developed me internally, you know, who I was, so that I wasn't mousy on the stage, right, when I was giving a, a public talk, or when I could I could confront you know nasty legislators without backing down and being effective in my confrontation as opposed to you know ineffective. And then coincidentally, I couldn't find a job in New York, which is unusual because I've I've had jobs all over the world, and the fact that New York City it was absolutely impossible for me to find work. And so I said, all right, I got to go into business for myself. And coaching, since I'd already had these several years of leadership coaching where I was the coachee, I was getting pretty good at, at just understanding what it was all about. So I went and had professional training and became a leadership coach. And now I work with leaders, both in corporate and nonprofit worlds to, and, and a lot of them, I have like three that are related to education right now. Um, you know, develop them as leaders so that they can be more effective in their own work. Excellent. The, uh, and you know, one of the things you have a separate website for your coaching, which I'll make sure is in the show notes along with some other information. Um, but, uh, and, and this all kinds of comes together here. If someone wanted to connect further with you and learn more about your coaching, learn more about you and the world that you got going on, where do you want to have them start? Well, the, the easiest way is, is just my website. You can you can send me a note through through um, you know russellheath.net, and if you just Google Russell Heath coach, I pop right up. And that you do, by the way. <laughs> um, I found that out. The uh, yeah. Um, and and so I'll make sure that that information's in the in the show notes, and because uh, I know you have a contact page on the websites, and uh, and so that's just the mm. easiest way to reach out. And you've also on. Uh, you're in some of the social media, like a Twitter and such. So we'll put that. Yeah, that's that. I, I'm I'm dried kicking and screaming by my publicist into the, into into the social <laughs> media. I, I wouldn't go there looking for me. <laughs> that's awesome. Sorry. <laughs> but but if I could just say, you know, if there's if among your listeners there's somebody who wants, you know, is in a leadership position, who wants to move into a leadership position, wants to develop themselves, particularly in the educational field and the writing. I've got a writer I'm working with right now as well. Um, yeah, please, please contact me and we can, we can knock some ideas around. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, well, I got last two questions for you, Russell, and they, they go like this. And actually my, it's, it's really three because <laughs> I'm going to make, I'm going to get, I, I learned something about you that I want to make sure we talk about, but uh, um, do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? And if so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? And and this is where I, I was wondering if we might also kind of get into, because you have something unique that you did in your past where you created your own school. So I was wondering if we might be able to co combine these here. Right. So, you know, that, that's a good question because a lot of people do have, have teachers that have made a big difference to them. I need to say that I was just too shy and introverted back then for a teacher to be able to, to, to make that difference. Even if they, you know, even if they were offering, I would have turned away from it. And you know, for all you introverts out there, man, I get your pain. So, but what I, what I was doing, I was, you know, I was a child of the sixties or late sixties and, and was looking for something different than what I was getting in the, in the high school that I was, uh, that I was in actually it was a junior high at the time. And seven of us, seven of my buddies in ninth grade got together and said, we're done with traditional education. We want to start our own high school. And so I, so we did. We wanted initially to have our own building and the whole works, but that was little too ambitious for ninth graders. And we eventually convinced the school system to give us a classroom and give us a budget and let us drop out of regular classes and pursue our own program. And we did. Uh, so there were the original seven of us that, that started it and, and we spent you know, twice, twice a week Wednesdays, Wednesday evenings and, and Sunday afternoons, designing our curriculum and designing the plan and getting it all together. And then we launched it in 10th grade. And uh, yeah, we had, that's what it was. We, seven other people joined us. So there were 14 that first year. And at that point, you know, me personally, I decided that I was going to leave school 
early and I talked the school into, into letting me graduate after 11th grade. So I left that, that our experimental program, our own program, and, and, and at, at 11, well, I left high school at 11th grade. I wanted to go to Alaska. I was done with school. Gotcha. That, but that speaks so, um, um, just speaks so highly of what, you, you know, the level that you're thinking at as a, you, know, you, you call yourself an introvert, but at the same time, oh my gosh, you, you've got this, this whole thought pat, uh, process going on about how school could be better or different or more to your liking and in addressing what, right? so what was like one of the number one things that had to be in your school, in your curriculum that you wanted Boy, I don't remember. And I don't know whether we did a really good job at educating ourselves. I mean, there was a lot of just bullshitting. But <laughs> I think, you know, as I look back at it, I think the real value of the, of the whole program was that, you know, the seven of us learned that if, if we didn't like where we were, we, we could change it. Wow. You know, you get yourself organized. And, and if, if life isn't working out, make it, make it different. Do something about it. And you know, all of those other six people are still my buddies. We're still in contact now, now 50 years, 40 years later. Um, and they've all done something with their lives. They've all gone out and done different things. That's so cool. And that's, uh, and it's right after that, that you head to Alaska, right? Well, no, I got, it got complex. It was two years after that before I got to Alaska. I, I was misdiagnosed with having rheumatic fever and it's a long story. And, and, uh, but I got up to Alaska in, in, so I left high school in 72 until I got to Alaska in 74. Gotcha. In a whole new world. So good stuff. Well, thank you for sharing. And I, you know, and here, here's my last question. It goes like this. Um, when things get difficult or there are too many issues all coming at once and you're, you start thinking about quitting, how do you overcome those feelings and keep going? Well, I'm hearing two different questions in there. How do I deal with lots of things coming at me? And what do I do when I, when I hear, you know, think of quitting? So on the first one, all right, you know, this is the coach and me speaking. If you're feeling overwhelmed, it's because of a conversation you have in your head about who you need to be and what you need to do. And you really need to get that conversation distinguished and then sit down on a piece of paper what it is you've got and what you're committed to and start prioritizing. So things have to come off. So I, I recently had to do this because it's my tendency to always jump on something new. And um, the marketing of this book, for instance, was, was um, I was marketing this book. I was writing, I was, you know, starting my other book. I wanted to do the, do the, uh, the boat and my coaching practice. And I had a nine to five job and I just needed more time. So I got rid of the nine to five job. That's always lowest priority for me. For me. <laughs> um, so, so that's it. You, you got to identify the, the, distinguish the conversation that's causing the overwhelm and then really sit down and say, what am I committed to? What are my priorities? Okay. But the other one about quitting. So I think about this a lot because there are a lot of mountains I've been on when the weather's going crazy, you're, you're cold, you've got frostbite and the, the summit's a long way off. And it might be dangerous. It might be avalanching. It might be, you know, there might be ice. And you say, you know, do you, do you go, do you go up or do you go down? And there are a couple thoughts here. One is, one is that almost anything you do, anything you do that's worth doing is going to be really difficult. It's going to be challenging. There are going to be times that you want to quit. And you say, I am not having fun. And you can say that with like it's objective truth. I am not having fun. I am soaking wet. I am freezing. My, my fingers have frostbite. And why the hell would any fool want to climb this mountain? And if you're living, forgive me, in the moment there, then the decision's obvious. You turn around and go back and you sit in a hot tub, get a beer or hot chocolate or whatever. But the fact is that most of us live our lives not in the moment. We live our lives in, nested in memories and if you continue on and you climb and you get to the top of that mountain, right, your experience of yourself and your experience of your life going forward is that you did something really epic and you accomplished that. And your life is richer for that, even if in the moment you were miserable. So you really have to weigh that. There are times when you need to turn around and go back, right? Again, coming back a male weakness you know, the Japanese and the Koreans, 
climbers have higher death rates than any other nationality because they can't say no, they can't turn back hmm. because it they would lose face. They would look weak. Right? So it's, it's, there's not a right or wrong answer here. It's you need to, you need to evaluate in the moment. But what I would say to most people is that if it's passing misery, keep on going. If there's a real great risk of a fatality, you know, then consider it. You might not want to keep on going. Awesome advice from someone who's been in some pretty treacherous and amazing situations. And so thank you so much. And Russell, I, I can't think enough for talking with me today. Rinse Crossing is a powerful story and it's, it's the characters are very cool. Cause like I said, you know, you just, I kind of, um, I'm getting into the, into the story and what you got going on there and, and just hearing about all your experiences and uh, also your leadership coaching has, has been excellent today. And I appreciate you sharing with, with us and uh, thank you so much. Hey, thank you, Steve. I, I really appreciate your time and your attention and your good questions. And uh, I hope to listen. I hope to hear from some of your uh, some of your listeners. Teaching, learning, leading K twelve is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching, learning, leading K twelve is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators. Podcasts by educators. <laughs> expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends. Hey!